Welcome to Autoimmune Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Justin Janoska, clinician and founder of the Autoimmune Revolution. After watching my mom suffer with autoimmune disease, I have made it my mission and purpose to help people like you. Unlock the door to better results, regain control of your body, and feel like yourself again. I want you to become an autoimmune alchemist and get your life back. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. May you be filled today with joy, abundance, and loving kindness. Peace and love. The world doesn't need you to be anything more than this. If you want to be more than this, then do that. But it's a want, not a demand. It's a good reminder for us and something that I'm actually working on with myself. It's easy to think that or say that we're enough and I'm enough, I'm sufficient, I'm adequate, do these sort of affirmations. But our behaviors say something else and we're striving to achieve something else and be more and do better. And I've been seeing that in myself for a while and I'm starting to let go of some of that. And it's sort of a fine line because you're not surrendering and giving up and accepting where you are and not trying to actualize and be better and grow, but there's, you're loosening the grip around it. You're not attached to this thing that is eventually going to be gone and it's going to disappear, right? So that's the ego. That's the parts of us that want to make us better and to achieve certain outcomes. And if you want to do those things, do that. But it's not a demand. No one's saying you are not worthy, you are not good enough if you don't do X, Y, Z. And it really comes back to, are you doing it from a place of wisdom and good intention or doing it because there's a part of you that thinks you need to do this in order to feel enough, worthy, adequate, et cetera. More of a trauma response, you might say. All right, so hopefully that gives you something to think about. And today we're going to get into something that is uh, very important and actually a very touchy subject, and that is homicides and suicides. And we're talking about this as a way to wrap up Mental Health Awareness Month. And this is, I mean, there's a lot to say about this. And what's ironic about this is what I just said about not being enough or feeling worthy relates to people who struggle with suicide and even homicide. And I'll talk about that today because at the core of it all is shame, unworthiness, grief. And these are real deep, deep deep-seated emotions that underlie these sort of destructive behaviors. It's quite complicated, and this short episode is not going to get into the meat of it really as much as I like to. It's uh, There's a lot to it that I can't cover in this episode, but what I want to do is at least give you some preliminary idea of how this looks, why it happens, because I think for a lot of us in society, we just are so, I hate to say it, but clueless about this and think that well, this person is just sick and needs help and they should do better and you shouldn't be hurting other people and you need to be punished for that and that's going to correct their issues and everything's going to be better again or not, right? 
And it doesn't really work that way, especially when you're coming from a place of survival. So let me just tell you what some of the research I said about adverse childhood events. Okay, we know that adverse childhood events, by the way, is these experiences that a child goes through during adolescence, during infancy, within the household primarily. But obviously, it could include things that happen outside of that, like bullying and uh, experiencing a natural disaster or seeing, witnessing violence, etc. So the research shows that ACEs or adverse childhood events are a real big deal that can create a situation of trauma for somebody. And they show that people who have four ACEs or more have a 700% chance of being an alcoholic and 1,200% risk of being suicidal. That is profound. And this meta-analysis shows that when examining people who experience maltreatment, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and childhood neglect, they were significantly associated with higher rates of suicide attempts. And people who experienced sexual abuse in particular were four times more likely to engage in suicide. Essentially, histories of childhood sexual and physical abuse are highly significant predictors of self-cutting and suicide attempts. So as we can see here, this type of abuse and maltreatment is a big risk factor for people who engage in suicidality or, or have suicide ideation. Physical and or emotional abuse and neglect are prevalent examples of this insidious trauma that a child experiences and remains at the crux of developmental trauma which is something that I talk about a lot on my Instagram, if you have seen my page. And when we're talking about developmental trauma, we're talking about what happens between a parent and child and really within the household. And the most sensitive time for a child to grow and to mature and to experience healthy neurodevelopment is really under the age of seven. Other things I've read have said between the ages of two and six, that's a time when a child is very sensitive to stress and if they experience a lot of it, that can really alter the course of their growth and maturation. And that is the prerequisite or stepping stone, you if you will, to mental health illnesses. There's been a lot of research that I've read where they say poor parent-child relationships, for example, is strongly associated with suicidality amongst adolescents. Now, there are are other things, of course, that can cause this risky behavior. And like I mentioned, abuse is one of them. But it seems to be that sexual abuse and maternal withdrawal, I have found to be the, in other words, maternal neglect, uh, physical or emotional neglect, you might say. Those two things seem to be, according to the research, the biggest predictors of suicidality. Thus, the parent child relationship and that attachment serves as a buffer for reckless behavior and protects against mental illness if it's a secure attachment. Okay. In fact, the research shows that when there is safety and support within a household, adolescents are significantly less likely to be suicidal. 
There's another study here that shows that maternal withdrawal in particular, again, this neglect that a child experiences is associated with hippocampal enlargement, which fosters suicidality. So really what they're saying is that the stress from that traumatic experience changes the brain. And we've seen this across a lot of neuroimaging studies with the amygdala getting fired up and, and enlarging or shrinking in the hippocampus, which is your memory bank, uh, shrinking or enlarging. And these changes skew one's behavior, amongst other things. So here they're showing that maternal withdrawal is associated with left hippocampal enlargement, which fosters suicidality. The study is called Disorganized Attachment in Infancy Predicts Greater Amygdala Volume in Adulthood. So what they're ultimately showing here is that poor parenting quality can look like maltreatment, which can be the smoking gun for risky behavior like suicidality. So let's quickly talk about attachment theory because this is one of the things that I was alluding to and I did a whole episode on this actually uh, somewhere back in February, I believe, of this year. So you can go check out that episode if you haven't listened to it, but let's break it down real quickly here in case you're not familiar. So attachment theory was devised in the 1960s by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. So they coined attachment theory, which is essentially this framework for understanding the different types of attachment styles a child has with their parent or caregiver, how they become ruptured, and the implications they have on the well-being of that child. And when you're looking at suicidality and homicidal behavior and other coping patterns and trauma responses, we want to look at attachment theory as one way to explain why this might happen. There are a lot of variables, of course. It's not just this, but the research has kind of pointed to how this can be the foundation for a lot of our issues because attachment disruption can be a source, a big source of trauma, like developmental trauma, like I said, and that is the catalyst for these problems that we see mentally and behaviorally. So there are four attachment styles, basically, and the first one is secure attachment. This is the one that we wish to have with our parent, and that's one that is protective, it's safe, there's a loving connection, the parent is emotionally and physically attuned to the child, they get their needs met, and everything's great. Okay, uh, that's going to happen for a lot of people, and there are moments where that isn't going to happen. But it's mostly to do. With, it's not about being that all the time, hundred percent of the time. It's more about having that be the majority of the time, and the child perceives it that way, where they feel safe and nurtured. And we know that secure attachment relationships are associated with appropriate social development and the ability to interact with others throughout life. They have agency. They have proper uh, self-regulation and coping um, emotional regulation and the skills to do that. So that's how we thrive in adulthood. And what's surprising is that around 35 to 40% of children in the United States fail to demonstrate this secure attachment with their parents. That was over 10 years ago, so that could have changed. The number I would predict is higher than that. It's difficult to study this because there are varying attachment styles across different populations, depending on who you're studying. Okay. Safe to say there is certainly uh, an issue with secure attachment. 
Now there are, so if it's not secure, what is, what does a child have? This is where we get into the three other kinds. There's anxious, ambivalent, or preoccupied attachment. And this is when a caregiver is, is sometimes distant out of the picture and sometimes connected. They're very much inconsistent and unpredictable with their affection and their presence. They're misattuned to the child's needs, kind of seesawing between being emotionally available and then withdrawn. Okay, that can be very chaotic for a child. Then there is the anxious avoidant attachment style. And this is when a parent or caregiver is, for the most part, withdrawn, distant, avoidant, not in the picture, and not meeting their child's needs and paying attention to them, showing them love and attention and affection. And that is where a child develops certain types of behaviors. And that could look like suicidality or other types of reckless behavior or self-harm. There's a vast amount of different coping responses that could take place. And then lastly is fearful avoidant or disorganized attachment. This is mostly seen in children who experience abuse and neglect and are for the most part in a traumatized environment. Their caregiver or the parent is abusive and a big source of threat and also a big source of safety. So it's this interesting uh, kind of paradox, if you will. And that can be very disorienting for a child. And of particular concern is the impact that a disorganized attachment style has on a child who may experience this type of neglect. Research has shown that disorganized attachment styles originate from interactions with a parent that promote danger and safety, like I said. Disorganized attachment styles can instill defiance and aggression in a child. And research has pointed that out, which makes you wonder if a disorganized attachment style is the catalyst for violent behavior, such as homicidal behavior and suicidal behavior. So let's talk a bit about homicidal behavior and what that's about. I am not an expert in this subject. I am interested in this and I have looked into the research around this and learned a fair amount about this topic that I would like to share with you because it relates to my work with trauma. And I don't work with people who have these sort of reckless behaviors, of course, but trauma is the thing that is underlying a lot of this, but the criminal justice system doesn't really look at it that way, or they might see some connection, but they're more concerned with punishment. And if we want to stop this and things to get better, we have to make changes. And the only, the only way we're going to change is if we have better awareness around mental health illnesses and trauma. Okay. Because these, the numbers of mass shootings have only gotten worse. I think over the past couple of years, it's like every year, the number is higher and higher. And there was a shooting down the road from me um, at a school where I live in Texas. So I, I want to bring this forward because I think we need to get better understanding what is potentially going on here. There is a Harvard psychiatrist who has a lot of experience with working with inmates and he's considered a violence expert. 
and his name is James Gilligan. I would highly recommend looking him up. He's ha- he has a book, I can't remember the name of it, that talks about this sort of thing that I'm going to mention here. And he is somebody who has worked with criminals in prison settings, and he learned about the tragic childhood origins of their violent behavior and why they're incarcerated. He's helped provide mental health and violence prevention services to prisons and prison mental hospitals up in the state of Massachusetts. So I watched an interview with him last year and he said a lot of things that were on my mind and really validated what I was thinking. And I'm going to tell you what I have in my notes about that. So he had said in this interview, talking about violence and homicide, homicidal behavior, we spend billions of dollars punishing people after they commit a crime and we spend nothing when it comes to prevention. And he would go on to say and talk about stories with inmates and how he learned that these men would have said they had died before they killed other people. They felt empty. They felt numb. They felt hopeless and lost the ability to have feelings. They felt pretty much dead inside and their sense of aliveness disappeared. He would talk about how people would even hurt themselves just to see blood to make sure they're still alive. And this is what people who have suicidal behavior do as well or engage in self-harm behavior like cutting, okay? And that's the theme that I continue to see over and over again is people, whether they engage in suicidal behavior or homicidal behavior is they feel shame and dead inside and empty and have no purpose to live. Right. And a lot of this has been, it's really mind blowing when you think about it is that people do these crazy acts, these heinous acts. And and it could very well be because that's their way of testing themselves to see if they're still alive because they don't feel alive. There's probably a great deal of derealization or maybe depersonalization. They're just completely detached from themselves and don't know what to feel or how to feel anymore. So when I think about people who engage in homicidal behavior and are in jail for life or have died themselves, I think about what happened to them, right? What was their childhood like? What was their experience in life? And how was their relationship with their parents? Because I, I guarantee, I almost bet, and guarantee that there is some real deep sadness there and some real crazy stuff that's happened in their lives. Um, research, you know, has looked at how mothers who had experienced abuse as children report increased parenting stress and a reduced relationship with their children. Okay. And I'm saying this because there is a reason why a parent might do what they do because of their own trauma and it just gets passed on. So if we don't deal with our own stuff, we pass that on to our kids through our parenting uh, styles and then our kids grow up to have these issues and then they act the same way to their kids, right? I mean, this is what we have seen. So if a parent has repeated uh, facial expression of resentment of or anger over and over again, the infant can have memory of these events. Neglect from a mother can teach the infant to learn to to withdraw and pull away. And so failure to make meaning out of these situations leads to stress and failure in development. Okay, I just wanted to point that out. 
And if you're asking me, these sort of things are a hidden source of unconscious rage where anger is born and it kind of boils and boils up, right? Could this explain why children grow up to become adults and engage in violent and reckless behavior? I don't know. I think, I think there's something to be said about it. Now, certainly we could debate about gun laws and what that's about and how that plays a role here. I live in Texas, so there's very liberal gun laws. And I wholeheartedly believe that there needs to be better regulation of guns because obviously that has a role in this. And we know that in other states where there's tight regulation, look at Canada, for example, they don't have these issues. Like they're very, very infrequent. So it does matter, but it doesn't change the fact that mental health issues are still the core of the problem, right? People can still get their hands on other things and harm themselves or harm others, right? So I don't like to limit it to just mass shootings because harmful behavior is the core problem. But I want to pay service and acknowledge the tragedies that are happening in this country because it's horrible for sure. We need to, if we want to change this, we have to start to look at a trauma and look at it from a different lens because if we can meet people where they are, and this is a deep, deep conversation that is well beyond this episode, but if we can meet people where they are and learn about their story and what happened to them with proper therapy, we can stop. I feel like we could stop a lot of this stuff because we can see that this can happen in people who are suicidal and we're sympathetic and compassionate for them, but we're not for people who are, who are homicidal. And to me, it doesn't really make a lot of sense um, because at the end of the day, people are trying to cope with their pain and they don't know how to do it very well, obviously. So if we can prevent people from becoming suicidal and following through with good therapy, we could probably do the same with homicidal behavior. Um, and it's not to say that we know who's going to do that, right? It's not that evident, but more about paying attention to the deeper behaviors and emotions that someone is suffering with that looks like they need some real serious help. I remember James Gilligan saying that violence is a major cause of trauma and trauma is a major cause of violence. And we should definitely keep that in mind when we're having this conversation. So I'm going to stop it there for now. And I would love for you to really think about what I'm saying here and think about what's beneath the surface because no one is really just born to be a bad person or to harm themselves. There's a, there's deeper stuff in the subconscious mind that is getting involved in these behaviors. And we have to look at the trauma. We have to look at the story and the biography and see what happened in a person's life. Okay. I'm not saying that we should let people off the hook and they shouldn't be um, punished or experience some consequence, but there's got to be much more than that. I mean, we, we can't just uh, limit it to punishment and do nothing else because nothing will really change. All right. There's a lot of trauma in this country and the better we can get with understanding where people come from and supporting them in the right way, the better chance we have in preventing them from snowballing into chaotic and reckless behavior, whether it's harming themselves or harming others. All right. So thank you so much for your time and listening. And I would love your feedback and what you think about this. Um, please leave your review for me. Let me know your thoughts. And I appreciate you very much. Be safe out there. Peace and love to you. See you next time.